Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Katie Couric, welcome to Inside the Hive. Thank you very much. Nice to be inside the hive versus outside the hive. Yeah, well, this is where the buzz is, you know, and now you're in it and you're creating even more. So thank you. So uh, I just wanted to start by saying, you know, first of all, when my mom learned that I was bringing you on the podcast, she was Oh, my God. It's like this is the pinnacle of my career as far as she's concerned. So <laughs> I'm so sorry. No, that is fine. You know, uh, and at least we at least we got here. This is good for me. But it was funny because it brought back some memories of uh, I was thinking about the meaning of Katie Couric, uh, you know, through the years for for we American TV viewers and myself included, because I was been listening to your podcast, um, your podcast. I've been listening to your book, your audio book, going there for the last two days. And so like having you on here feels like almost a continuum of that because I've been listening to you for two days. Right. You can't get my voice out of your head. I, you, you know, it's a fine. It's fine. It's fun. It's fun. I'm not going to say it's, it's perky, but it's, it was less perky in the book. This is not a perky book, you know, but it's funny, but there's, it's almost a masochistically honest, which is very entertaining. And so, uh, and I love the audio book because you have a lot of um, clips, like audio clips from the Today Show and like sound effects. For instance, when you mentioned Jeffrey Epstein's name, suddenly there's like a, you know, the car breaking <laughs> right. uh, sound effect. But I was thinking about where I was. I was listening to your audio book and I was think, think it gets to the part about 9-11. And as I was listening to that, I realized I was with my mom. On that day, and we were watching the Today Show. I had gone to visit my parents in Maine. We woke up. What did we do? They watched the Today Show every morning. So I, we flipped it on. And I, my entire experience of 9-11 for hours on end was you, you know, you and Matt in the, in the whole scene there. And, you know, for so many millions of Americans, their experience of, like, history and the way, you know, their world was shaped was through you. You were mediating it and moderating it. And um, all of which is to say that here we are years later and the curtain has been pulled back with this book. And it is, I said at the top that it's so candid. I mean, the things that are in here were surprising to me. Uh, you know, your early experiences with bulimia, the fair, you know, Larry King trying to jump on you on a couch or something. And then you're going to have a date with Michael Jackson. You're, you know, you're very candid about your sex life. Um, there's heartbreaking stuff about, you know, your your husband. And that was I, mean, I want to talk to you about it later in this in this podcast. And also squirting milk from your breasts across a room when you were an er a mom. I, I was just like, what? My head exploded. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, there's just a lot in here and you feel at times whipsawed by how revelatory and some of the bad qualities of your own, you know, work and 
your own flaws, right? You you feel almost whipsawed by how much you experience uh, that you hadn't been aware of. And so when I was reading it, I kept asking myself, you know, what made you want to write this book? I guess the memoirs I like to read are honest and descriptive and real. And I wanted to tell my story really primarily for my daughters, not for, with all due respect, media reporters like you, Joe. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You were not my intended audience necessarily, but it was written for people who wanted to know what was going on behind the scenes, who wanted to get to know me better, who wanted to know what it was like to make your way, to scratch and claw your way up the ladder of of broadcast news, to, you know, jump over the barricades that were erected before you, to deal with certain amounts of sexism throughout my career, to be a mom, to deal with loss, to be brought to a place and be kind of rejected, you know, all these life experiences to, to hear when someone you thought you knew well was accused of really grossly inappropriate behavior in the workplace. I mean, all those things. And I think it's interesting. I think I've Mm -hmm. had an incredibly interesting life. And the book is really resonating with people who are, are actually reading it. Um, yes. And I think it's it's a story of one woman over a certain period of time in history who is looking back with self-awareness and an ability to reflect and uh, a desire to be honest and forthright and tell the truth of what has transpired at certain points in her life that have been completely misreported, (laughs) you know, Mm -hmm. uh, by quote unquote media insiders. So I just thought, you know, it was time for me to tell my story and I love my book and I'm really glad I did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I kept thinking to myself, wow, if the Katie Couric of like 20, 30 years ago could not have written a book like this, right? Something changed. And, um, you know, I guess it's just, you're more comfortable in your own skin probably today than you were 30 years ago. I think I was always pretty comfortable in my own skin, honestly. I would actually reject that. I think the world has changed a lot. The way we think about women has changed a lot. Uh, I think what we know about workplaces has changed a lot. And I think I'm freer and more liberated to tell what I was experiencing. Mm. But I don't, I've always been pretty comfortable with who I am. Maybe it wasn't your skin, it was the environment around you. Yeah, I guess so. Uh. Um, I think it, I think it was. And I think as a result, it's really interesting to look at my life in hindsight. That would have been a good title, in hindsight. Um, Mm. So I think that for you to even make that observation means that you probably didn't know me very well and you projected certain things on me sure. as an outsider mm-hmm. or somebody who watched me on television. Absolutely. And, um, and now I'm just sharing actually who I am and not some two-dimensional 
you know, one dimensional person who's been on your television screen or who helped help shape the news and share the news with you and people like mm-hmm. you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and it's a much more uh, complicated profile. Um, but, you know, the way the book uh, first came into our, our radar wasn't necessarily optimal for you. It started to leak out in the press and then in the New York Post and places. And um, as uh, my my friend and colleague, Rebecca Tracer, wrote a fantastic profile of you in New York Magazine, which I suggest people check out. But she said, uh, you know, that you you hadn't necessarily been reading it, but the rendering of her, she's I'm quoting here, as a cackling score settler and catfighter clearly <laughs> bothered her, <laughs> right? Um, and I was thinking there's a lot of instances in the in your book where you describe sort of this sort of brutal, you know, media world that you're existing in and people like, uh, you know, you get called by the New York Post at one point and told that your current boyfriend is actually moving out of your apartment and before you even knew about it. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I, but I also wondered, I mean, you couldn't be really surprised at this point that, you know, this is how people would react necessarily. Well, I think it was very meta, as they say. You know, I talk extensively about the catfight narrative and how women are always put in this kind of uh, storyline. And then to see it kind of unfold, it was sort of amusing on one hand and exasperating on the other. But it is sort of this is the way I think more than ever the media landscape operates. And so it made me laugh because the way things were cherry picked and distorted and put together as a completely alternative narrative than what I wrote, um, you know, with absolutely no context or nuance or, you know, with the reading it, reading the book holistically, um, you know, it's just, this is, this is the world we live in. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, people are reduced to these caricatures and these narratives are rewritten to get clicks or sell papers. And it was ever thus. But um, just particularly since I pointed it out in the book and then to have it done uh, when the book got go. leaked, I was like, wow, you see, so the more things change, the more they stay the same. And it is, I guess, uh, you know. The New York Post, not known for their context uh, <laughs> style journalism. So, you know, one of the themes of the book is that early in your career, you were called Catherine Couric. Mm-hmm. And well, so I called myself was, that. That's right. Well, okay. Point taken. But at some point you became Katie. Tell me about the moment. It sort of just happened, right? That you went from Catherine to Katie. Yeah, I think, well, you know, I was covering the Pentagon I was always accused of looking younger than my years or maybe my age and coming up in 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 an industry that really focused on appearance. I felt like Catherine gave me a bit more gravitas, a word that uh, enters the book in in a myriad of ways, especially during my CBS tenure. But, um, Mm -hmm. you know, I think when I got the job at the Today Show, there was clearly an appreciation both for my journalistic chops, but I think as much as those were appreciated, I think it was also an embrace of my personality. 
And I think that probably that Catherine Katie divide, I talk about it as sort of a fault line throughout my career. And I think that I was Katie to everyone I knew, except for my dad when he called me Catherine when he was upset with me. And so I think I just acquiesced to this idea that I was Katie. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I knew that my approachability, my sort of lack of pretense, the fact that I was sort of the same on camera as I was off was what people liked or at least seemed to be resonating. So I think at that juncture, because I was doing everything from interviewing generals to cooking segments, Katie seemed to work better. And I think, in a way, I think that name allowed me to present myself in a multidimensional way and not to try to kind of put on airs that I was Catherine and ergo, you need to take me seriously. Yeah, yeah. Well, this, this divide you talk about, this fault line, is sort of the knot at the heart of the book in terms of it's like talking about your career because it's sort of your experience of in this male-dominated TV industry, it's it's a, a world that you're, whether inadvertently or by design, you both are challenged by and benefit from being a woman. Definitely, right? yeah. In, in that business, and you sort of end up, you know, playing into some of the tropes that also limit you. And I, and no, nothing kind of demonstrates that more than when after you left the Today Show, uh, you go to CBS and become a kind of Catherine, <laughs> right or or it, they they try to box you into one and that turns out unhappily I, I would say and then at ABC you do a daytime talk show and that's sort of like let's be a pure Katie without any Catherine and neither works and it's sort of interesting because you discover that the Today Show is a little bit of like a you know a delicate balance that held you exactly in the center right um, yeah uh, and, it, and when you came out of that. You find yourself in this sort of, you know, an analogy as Hillary Clinton, this feeling of having to project toughness and overcompensate. But I was, we were listening to this last night uh, with my wife, and she was listening to the part where it's the first night you're going to be on CBS News. And you're so concerned about every single thing that you're wearing and the sense that you're out on like a, on a tightrope with your clothing up, you know, because of what you might project. And my wife was like, how did she put up with this bullshit? I mean, it's just, it, it's so, it really gives cues you into two things. One, how the TV industry and the TV business is such a retrograde world, you know, and also how it's completely irrelevant. And this is why um, at this point in, in the world. Yeah. I wouldn't call CBS a failure. You know, you said that didn't work. And You know, I look back at those five years and think about all the incredible work that I did. So, you know, I think I think the endeavor, Joe, was an audacious one uh, that the vision that Les Moonves had of totally reimagining the evening news was probably not right. I think if I had gone in and just done things the way they had done it all along. And my mandate wasn't to be mix it up and make it less voice of God and try mm-hmm. to retool the format. I think it probably would have worked um, or certainly wouldn't have been sort of 
as rejected as it was. So, but I look at, you know, my Sarah Palin interview, a lot of the, you know, my Sully interview on 60 Minutes. So to say it didn't work, I think is a little hyperbolic, honestly. Well, I mean, in the book, you're pretty hard on yourself about it. I mean, you you feel like towards the end that it, I don't want to say, well, I don't know how else to put it, that you didn't feel like it fulfilled its promise. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And I would definitely say that more, but I don't mm-hmm. think all was lost by during those five years. They were challenging for sure. I think it was a lot of external uh, criticism, internal criticism. But, you know, if you want to just look at the work itself, sure. uh, I, I I wouldn't say it was all bad by any stretch. Right. Um, it was, it was, I think, psychically, uh, <laughs> yes. you know, difficult, yeah. but I, I, I think it was necessary. I hope that, as I mentioned in the book, that I made it easier perhaps for Nora O'Donnell. Perhaps I didn't, I don't know. Um, uh, I think, I think the the notion of retooling the evening newscast that is watched by a, an, a much older audience. You just need to look at the ads on those newscasts. I think that was probably given the changing media landscape and the move toward digital content and everything we've seen in the last five years. Um, it was it was on a downward slide, and the notion of making it more user friendly and perhaps attracting a younger demo, which which we did. Yeah. Um, but that the idea, Joe, that that was going to save this aging format and and preserve it for the future. Yeah. I think that's where the disconnect was. Well, it goes back to something you say in here, which is, you know, the rule is that you underpromise and over over deliver. And this ended up being, you know, I don't want to say the opposite, but you basically they overpromised at the at the top. And and oh, in some definitely. ways it, it couldn't be helped because they're also saying this is a world historic event that a woman is going to be there. So you yeah. are you're right there, you're immediately set up for you know, the tension that you experienced. Right, right, the high expectations. And I think, you know, you're right. Had I to do it over again, it would have been a much more uh, softer launch. But, you know, you have to remember it was a big deal when I left the Today Show. It was a big deal that I came to CBS. I remember saying to Matthew Hiltzik, who was helping me at the time, you know, I really don't want to do all these interviews. I feel like this is overkill. Um, It's embarrassing. I am. I knew that the expectations weren't being set unrealistically. Sure. But he said, you know, they're going to write about it. So you might as well, you know, let your voice be a part of the conversation. Uh, (laughs) You know, could that have been more carefully managed? Perhaps. But but you're right. It was treated as this historic event. And even I saw it as an important, you know, step. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for for women. And, um, you know, so that that made it very difficult. And as I said, I felt like, you know, the, if, if I got run over by one of those buses with my with my mug plastered on the front of it, that would have been the perfect O. Henry ending yeah. <laughs> to my my whole uh, experience. Yeah. Is um, Matthew Hiltzik still your publicist? No, no, no. I mean, we're still friends, but. I just really didn't need need that kind of sort of, you know, constant 
sort of, uh, you know, help with that, especially as I've become more entrepreneurial and am doing other things. I wasn't sort of in the white hot spotlight to the degree that I needed it to be managed. So he wasn't involved in this book? No. Yeah. I was going to say you could blame him for the rollout stuff with the leaks and stuff. Um, (laughs) The 2024 election means this year is going to be chock full of drama and nail-biting suspense. You deserve a politics and news podcast with expert analysis. No spin, no BS, just trusted journalists talking about what you need to know. I'm David Plotz, and each week on Slate's Political Gab Fest, I sit down with the New York Times' Emily Bazelon and CBS News' John Dickerson to do just that. Join us as we unpack the latest in politics, news, and the courts. Listen to the Political Gab Fest every Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts. I bring him up also because, as you know, he was sort of the one who I initially spoke with when, when lo, those many years ago, I wrote a profile of you for New York Magazine, and it was about your experience at CBS and what was happening and some of the disappointments and challenges you guys were facing. And and of course, you mentioned the book. And like every good uh, media person, uh, of course, I go to the index of anybody's book to see, uh, hey, what's (laughs) going on in here? Uh Uh-oh. You know, as soon as you see your name with a page number next to it. Um, and you were really, uh, you know, upset by the cover and the cover line uh, of that story now. Um, and let's recount it for a moment. I, I don't want it to be too painful for you, but it seems like you worked it out oh. in the book. <laughs> Trust me, no offense, but it doesn't really play that outsize a role in my life, Joe. <laughs> no. Well, it, it it you do say it made you cry or you were upset by it and it may was just all the tension you I don't were think under anyway. that made me cry. I think it was I think it was a combination. I don't think that I don't think that whole article made me cry. I think I talked about sort of just feeling an onslaught of negative media. Are you talking about when I cried at the dinner table with my daughters? I think so. Yeah, I don't think it was that article. I think it was uh, an accumulation of such. Right, right. um, Basically, you, you know, and I can't remember, did I participate in that? Did we talk? We had um, lunch at Sarah Beth's. Yeah. And and you were very um, candid about your displeasure with how things had gone down and you softly aimed some of the some of it onto Les Moonves, who is also quoted the piece saying he had uh, he held no responsibility for the for what had happened, uh, which is what you do if you're a Les Moonves. But um, who uh, just for listeners was the uh, head of CBS uh, network. But um, and I remember at the time thinking that you're doing the interview and that Matthew Hiltzik's helping arrange it. And so forth. And I think Nicola was also on the record talking to me about some of the. She had just left, I think, and there were some disappointments about the culture at CBS. This ingrained culture that just from the outset uh, just didn't seem like they were going to accept you one way or the other. And, and, and very much in the vein of the kind of like old school sexist shop, <laughs> right? That you entered and. Um, it seemed at the time that um, you were trying to send a message to Les Moonves 
through some of the things you were mm. saying in this article. That's what I remember thinking. I remember like, they're really kind of like, why would she go out in public and say that, uh, you know, or, or sending a message back to, the, to CBS too about, you know, some of the mistreatment, I would say, that you yeah. had experienced. I'm trying to remember that. Um, I don't think I was. I don't think I was necessarily trying to send a message. I'm sure I'm a very direct person. I'm sure that I was experiencing something that was something I would have discussed with Les or Sean McManus at the time. I think probably I must have been just sort of reacting to some of the stuff that you were asking me. Um, And I think probably saying the same things that I am saying to you here today. Yeah. That, you know, I think from a business perspective, it was slightly vexing for me that less sort of dropped me into this culture and then didn't make sure that the body didn't reject the organ, as I write in my book. Mm-hmm. And that if, in fact, this was something he wanted to do, that that he needed to get buy-in from the people who were actually doing the work on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. And if he hadn't, um, and that was probably something that my agent and I should have done more due diligence about, to be honest right. with you, you know, was this sort of Les Moonves's fantasy, kind of a Hail Mary to try to get a what had been a third place newscast for what, 13 years before I got there, try to improve it. Um, and and try to do something that was radically different. But, you know, I think the, the problem was, and I think this is sort of organizational psychology, right? The, the people doing the day-to-day, I, I don't think they got the memo. And right. so I think there was this disconnect. Why is she coming here? Why is she doing this? And Honestly, for people who had been there for years and years and years, and there are many, many lifers at CBS News, which speaks well of the organization and perhaps poses some questions about the organization, that, um, you know, somehow, you know, this wasn't something that they had signed on to. So I think if I was, I I think I would have said the same thing then as I'm saying now. Mm -hmm. And it was... It was an interesting culture clash of, uh, you know, as my husband said, you were a change agent in an organization that didn't want to change. And I think just by virtue of me being brought there, it felt very threatening to a lot of people. Like, is this CBS News 2.0? And what does that mean for me and my job? Someone who's been here forever, who feels very comfortable and secure in the way we've always done it. And here's someone coming in and saying, maybe we should think about doing things differently. And I think that's very, very unsettling for an organization, especially if it's not managed well from the top. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wish you'd called me, Katie, before you took the job, because as somebody who had covered CBS, I can tell you anything that Les Moonves did, the news division was not going to be into it. Right. Right. Because there was a division in the company between this big entertainer guy in Hollywood and all of these old school, you know, buttoned up guys in their, you know, J press suits and stuff. You know, they they uh, were crotchety and cranky people and they were all vipers, by the way. They would like, you know, as you mentioned in the book, they would especially uh, 60 minutes 
I'm thinking about now, you know, these guys would, uh, they were like dinosaurs fighting, you know, like in an old uh, claymation 60s movie, right? Um, just constantly. And um, there's an amazing moment in your book where they, um, you get this interview, you have this interview with Sarah Palin that you're going to be able to do. And she's like the rock star of the Republican Party under, you know, as McCain is running. And you go to Bill Owens, who was a big poo at 60 Minutes at the time, and you say, and he says to you, uh, no, Sarah Palin. No, the producer, Lori uh, Beecher actually called him. Uh, right. Rick Kaplan said, call 60, tell them we'll give them the interview and we'll just drop breadcrumbs or something like that, right? That's right. And what does he tell you? Like, what's, what's he, what was his reply? She's just not that interesting. She's just not that interesting. This is a newsman at 60 Minutes. Just unbelievable. And But the implication is no Katie, right? They don't yeah. even care if it's news. Yeah. Which is just, you know, that's in a nutshell, that's the sort of level of um, kind of gross. Pettiness. Pettiness, pettiness right? Yes. Pettiness. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, it's a shame, but... You know, I thought that was so illustrative of kind of the environment there. And I really, really tried, you know, to ingratiate myself or play the game. I'm just not, that's just not really my thing. Uh, but I would say to Jeff Fager, you, you know, thank you so much. You're always improving my scripts. Uh, you know, I appreciate your help. But it was... Uh, yeah, it was just a, a weird place. I mean, a lot of people have told me he had he had difficulty with with strong, competent women, which is a bummer. But I guess some people do. Yeah, well, especially in that shop. I mean, and as you mentioned in the you know in the book, when the Me Too movement comes along, and you're starting to hear about all these people you knew, including Matt, Matt Lauer and other people had been in you know, in this sort of like uh, had been kind of gross misbehaviors towards women. Um, That's one way of putting it. Joe. Yeah, well, they, they, you know, if you were, you know, as a person who covered the media at the time, you heard about all this stuff all over the place secondhand and just the, the toxic culture of television news. And in fact, a reporter named Sheila Kolhatkar, who's now at The New Yorker, and I did a little a series of pieces in the New York Observer around the time that Bill O'Reilly got into his loofah issue. And um, there was a quote in it from an anonymous TV anchor who is still on the air to this day. And uh, this is 2004 that this quote, I want to read this quote to you. Uh, and this person was being unbelievably candid. Uh, At the producing level, it's all young women. 99% of whom have no chance of being on TV. They like being in TV and they like powerful men. Each host has around him lots of good-looking unmarried women. Women are excited by power. Let's be totally clear. The temptation to, and I apologize for the French, fuck your staff is overwhelming, literally almost overwhelming. You just can't imagine how sexually out of control it is. A quarter of the women are bisexual. They're good-looking. They're totally without restraint. Nobody has family around. You're on the road traveling, and you're making $7 million a year, and they're making $65,000 a year. That's three grand a month to live in a big city. You've got all the money. In every way, you're the sheik, they're the harem. You can't overstate how true that is. That's the natural dynamic End quote. That's a person. I said, that's Wait, what, was that a woman or a man? That was a man who is still on the air today. And 
when I heard that quote, I mean, that encapsulated what I, everything I'd heard and known about the TV business, you know, from the networks to the cable channels, and that what we were learning about with the Bill O'Reilly stuff. And I just was curious to know, like, maybe you were shielded from some of this because you were a t on the talent, right? And, you know, of course, you were not going to behave like that because that's not the kind of makeup of the of your staff. But like, I think I was struck by the fact that a lot of the men you ended up working with and being involved with, from Matt Lauer, Jeff Fager, Les Moonves, all became part of this gallery in the Me Too movement. And in the book, you were very shocked to learn that Matt Lauer has this behavior, you know. But weren't you, were you aware that in the wider industry that you were in, this was what it was like? I mean, well, if you remember, I talk about that, Joe, about NBC in the 90s and about network behavior. I think to that anchor's point, I, it sort of sickens me to hear, hear that quote. Yeah. Uh, you know, there were many people who were involved in extramarital relationships that I heard about, you know, from, you know, the highest person at the network level uh, to, you know, I even said at one point I had heard the head of HR was screwing an associate producer. There were just no boundaries and no, I think, no rules in a weird way while I was at NBC. And um, I think people just took tremendous liberties. And, you know, I think you'd hear a lot of rumors circulating. And as I said, I just, you know, I kind of just focused on my work. And it was one of those weird situations where you didn't want to approach someone and say, hey, are you, you know, involved sure. with this person? Um it was kind of, as I write, a don't ask, don't tell environment. And, you know, I talked to Marianne Cooper, who's a gender studies researcher at Stanford, and she talked about how permissive environments often, you know, lead to more serious transgressions. And I think with, with so few rules and sort of uh, no real code of conduct, I think that's what resulted in 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 a lot of these uh, you know transgressions or things that were just grossly inappropriate or not necessarily consensual and an understanding the power dynamics of having someone with all the power and who knows if that person feels pressured, right? That's what the whole Me Too conversation has really been about and something that I think we've come to terms with, that a relationship cannot necessarily be consensual when the one person is in power, has control, and can make decisions about someone's job or livelihood. Mm -hmm. So I think what we saw is a real shift in our understanding of inner office relationships. And so I think I just sort of focused on my work and you never knew. I mean, Joe, you cover the industry. There's so many rumors. 
the worst gossip. People yeah. in media love to talk about people in media. That's why the media writes about the media so much, because they find themselves endlessly fascinating. But you never knew what was gossip and what wasn't. And like, I never wanted to get into the gutter of that. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I didn't want to be like, oh, did you hear or what's going on with so-and-so? It just felt, honestly, just so unsavory. So instead, I just kind of like focused on my work. And by the way, I was extremely busy working all the time. I had two little girls, a husband who was diagnosed with cancer. So I just chose not to kind of get into this whole whole scene. And it wasn't really my role to a babysit the men in my company. No. Or and, and if anybody had come to me and said, I feel really uncomfortable no, I feel like this person is, you know, approaching me or, you know, coming on to me, then of course I would have gotten involved. And I had gotten involved in situations like that earlier in my career. But um, so I guess the question is, you know, you kind of sensed that it was going on, but you didn't really understand the dynamics of power that were at work at the time. And you just thought it was part and parcel of being in the business or, in fact, perhaps any business. Well, in the TV business in particular, you know, was so male dominated. And, you know, we're learning about the toxic nature of men with too much power, with the wrong motivations. Um, And a lot of them are in TV because TV, especially during the period that made people like Jeff Baker and Les Moonves, and Matt, to some degree, too, like, um, well, definitely that there was so much power in TV, right, when there was a three network mm-hmm. universe. And right. a, a lot of them got into it because it's a visual medium. You know, hey, I can be on TV. I can make lots of money and be surrounded by pretty people. So, you know, it's not. I can um, be recognized. I can be, yeah. you know, get the best table at the restaurant. I mean, the, all the accoutrements yeah. uh, are very ego gratifying, right? And um, and I think that 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 is intoxicating for women too. I talk sure. about that, yeah. But I think particularly for men, and if there are no, you know, guardrails, you can see how that power was easily abused and how women were exploited in service of that power. Yeah, there's a pretty interesting sequence in your book where you're struggling with what to think about Matt and all these revelations are coming out about him. Some are very gross. And um, and you go and talk to a woman who you'd helped get into the business about what had happened. And in a way that you like, here's somebody who you saw and helped get in there and so sort of maybe feel some level of like responsibility for finding out how things came out in the wash for her. And it was bad. Um, tell us about that moment. And, and was that the moment, I guess, where it's becomes very solid for you, what has happened? You know, I, um, I went through a process and, and, and I wanted to share sort of my process with the reader of learning about this and kind of squaring it with a person, you know, I had a really, you know, very happy and positive experience with and a good relationship with. And, you know, I started kind of 
reliving things and, you know, incidents that had happened or things that I had heard and trying to put sort of this puzzle together. Um, and I met up with, with um, a young woman who had written me a fax when she was a scholarship student at Temple who uh, I helped get into the business. I said to my assistant, this is the kind of person we should be helping. She has no connections. She wrote me a fax out of the blue. She wanted to shadow me. And she got a job at NBC ultimately. And we kind of lost touch. I mean, I had left in 2006. You have to realize these allegations and Matt's firing happened 11, 11 years after I had, had right. left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I just talked to her about sort of what happened. And, you know, I was still kind of old school, like, well, you know, how did this, how did this come to pass? And, and I saw that, that the whole encounter or encounters were um, just inappropriate. And she was 24 years old and, you know, both flattered and confused. And it made me realize that, you know, <laughs> that these people in power had a certain responsibility to comport themselves in a way that didn't uh, take advantage of of younger women. And no matter, you know, what the dynamics were. And so that was both an epiphany and other reporting I did, honestly, that I didn't include in the book. Really? To protect people. Yeah. Right. And it just made me realize that, you know, as I quoted... <laughs> Spider-Man, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And that, that I think to our earlier comments, I think that some of these people felt they were, that the rules didn't apply to them when, when there weren't rules really in place anyway. Right. Yeah. Um, so, so I think just sitting with it, and thinking about it, talking to my daughters about it. You know, younger women have a very different perspective on this than women who have been almost, is the word inculcated in, in a certain culture. Yeah. You know, it was interesting. My daughter Ellie said, why, and I think I almost quote her, you know, why should the onus be on women to navigate men's advances mm -hmm. instead of on men to stop making them? Like, you know, for so much of my career and for the career of people who are my age, we had to, you know, how do we react? And I think Ellie's right. How do we get people, men to act differently? Yeah. And, and it, it just so screwed up this, this idea that it's on us when it's really on them. And um, I'm I'm really happy that things have changed, and that the environment in these organizations is quite different than it was when I was at the network. And even you know, I I think that that even at CBS, you know, I don't think I was the victim of Jeff Baker's gross behavior, but I think 
misogyny probably informed the way he treated me. Well, I think they're connected. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, one is just an excess of the larger framework of, you know, sexism and misogyny and, you know, the kind of patriarchal gestalt of network news as it as it used to exist, right? You know, another figure, and I want to separate this conversation from the one we just had because it's not related to, you know, um, uh, harassment, but um, Jeff Zucker was like such an important figure in your career. Mm-hmm. And um, by the end of the book, I got the sense that you guys didn't really, um, that you weren't friends anymore, that maybe you had fallen out after all that you'd been through. Um, is that right? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Listen, I still look back very fondly on our experiences together at the Today Show. I give him a lot of credit for really being, uh, you know, the creative force at the Today Show. But I think that it was disappointing um, This when he worked with me on the syndicated show, which I think was a mistake for him and for me to bring him in, because clearly it was not a job it was a placeholder in retrospect. It wasn't a job that he was really that excited about, I think. Um, I think he felt it was a real step down. Yeah. And um, and I, I also think the Matt Lauer stuff created sort of weirdness between us. Um, yeah. You know, uh, I felt- Why so? Really uncomfortable. I, I don't know. I think that I'm not sure what his relationship is like with Matt. But I think I think they're friendly and friends, and that just that whole dynamic made it complicated. I think. Well, so absolutely. I, think, I mean, I think both of those things made me feel less comfortable around him. America has a problem, one that is uniquely ours. On the new season of Long Shadow, I delve into the complicated history of firearms from the Second Amendment to the AR-15. I try to make sense of how we got here and how we might find a path forward. From Longlead, PRX, and Campside Media, in collaboration with The Trace, I'm Garrett Graff, and this is Long Shadow in Guns We Trust. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I mean, that's another sort of aspect of this, uh, of the Lauer um, thing, which is that, you know, you have to be careful, you know, being seen with this guy again and being connected with him after all that we now we know about him and being friends with him. And like, what would that mean if you were still friends with him? Like, it would be uh, judged. It would be kind of its own uh, disadvantage, right? And I wondered if, uh, when you were doing your investigations about Matt, by calling people and finding out what their experiences were and getting a direct feel for it, did you feel bad about it? Did you feel guilty that you hadn't seen it? Yeah. I mean, I think that if someone had been hurt, I wish they had come to me, especially when I was there. But I think sort of the the secretive nature was part of the the power dynamic, as I wrote, of, you know, don't tell anyone. This is, you know, this is just between us. Right. So I think that was a weird 
kind of manipulative device. And, you know, listen, yeah, of course, if somebody had been hurt, and I even talk about the fact that of that that strange top line about uh, that was clearly sexual in nature with a with a young production assistant. And at the time, yes. I thought, oh, that's disgusting. But I didn't think, is she okay? You know, right. I think the mindset was just different back then. And I remember thinking, I can't believe, you know, he's cheating on his wife. Not, I can't believe he's taking advantage of that young woman. Right. And, and I and write about that. I write about that in the book. That's right. And uh, for listeners who haven't read the book yet, there was sort of a missent message that you ended up being privy to that made it clear that Matt was, um, you know, having a relationship with a, a young um, female employee. Um, the uh, and the other person we talked about a moment ago is after you left CBS was, you know, Jeff Fager also himself came under some allegations about harassment. And I found it really fascinating to learn that you may have actually put the Washington Post on that case. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think they were on it already uh, because they had done some great reporting on Charlie Rose. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think that, you know, I didn't know, honestly, the extent to which uh, Jeff Fager had abused his power yeah. uh, in terms of inappropriate behavior or, you know, things he had said to women working there. Um, I knew that the, the, the culture there and the climate that he created and oversaw seemed to be rife with that kind of, uh, you know, women weren't getting promoted, men were. Uh, it's, it seemed to be a difficult place for a lot of women to work. Um, yeah. And, and, and I was sort of just talking about sort of the culture and the, the uh, environment that he seemed to be the overlord of. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't think that I necessarily kicked off that reporting. I, I, might, I might have led people to think that I thought that in the book. I think that they were onto it, but I think maybe more as he allowed Charlie Rose you know, he was an enabler of Charlie Rose Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, to keep his job and to instead of, you know, talking to Charlie Rose or addressing his behavior would move the assistant who complained about him to another job. You know, that kind of kind of chess game that I think happened frequently before this movement erupted. Right. Yeah. Um, but but I, I, I do think that. I mean, they did some ama- amazing reporting, and I think they they saw that perhaps, um, you know, as I said, he was creating an environment where this kind of behavior could flourish. And I thought it was interesting that they had a very hard time getting that published. And, you know, I think, you know, as a journalist, you have to weigh all these things because... Um, you know, the pendulum continues to swing back and forth. And I think uh, due diligence and the utmost care is called for. But I also think it was a case of people protecting certain people because they had a vested interest in doing so. Yeah. 
And I write about that, I think. Yeah, yeah. One of the sort of um, kind of emotional undercurrents of the book or sort of through lines of the book is your relationship and your interest in journalism that came through your father. Your father had at one time been in journalism and uh, he became a, a publicist, but he'd always sort of had a uh, you know, kind of thwarted desire to be in journalism, and that kind of comes out in your life. And, you know, CBS must have seemed like, you know, to be the on Holy 60 Grail. Minutes. Yeah, to be on 60 Minutes. I mean, God, that, and, you know, I, I came up in the same world in which I thought 60 Minutes was like the, you know, the vaunted tip of the diamond in like journalism on te television. And, and there was something very emotional in the book about reading about your father. I know he was sort of ill a, a part of the time you were there. And you sort of mentioned, it was heartbreaking to me, that uh, uh, when things started to kind of go sour at CBS a little bit or were less than optimal, uh, they had seemed to stop scrapbooking your career. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I found that really heartbreaking. But, um, you know, I mean, and that's part of like the disappointment in all of these male figures at this you know, especially at a place like CBS, is to get inside finally and finally be there and learn that you were never going to belong there in their minds or uh, or be able to fulfill, you know, the dream that your father sort of planted in you all those years ago. Like, um, and the fact that those were happening concurrently, that your father was sick and that things, you know, you know, it, it really made me um, cue into sort of your emotional experience in a way that you probably weren't going to tell me in New York Magazine back in 2007. But, you yeah. know, and it, but it was very enriching for me to read that. Listen, I think when you're covering a story like that, you're sort of necessarily reductive. And I think you were responding to, you know, a juicy narrative, you know, bright and shiny object comes to old boys network or old school network and uh you know they they, they spit her out like a hairball you know so i think and you know no offense but i think that was the article you were writing well that's and true i'm not and i'm not sure that you would have been open to or you know with all due respect perceptive enough to kind of write a a more nuanced article at the time where you were writing it. I think probably with benefit of hindsight, Joe, you might write a very different article in well, 2021. Let me just, uh, let me chime in here. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> I reread the article because I was like, oh, I should go reread it. It's a very fair story. It's really many of the things you talk about in the book were just described in the article about the culture because really it wasn't about you per se. It was about it was an institutional story. It was a story right. about, you know, this culture, right, this culture clash inside of CBS. And it was not particularly uh, you'd call it a hit job in the book when I take offense with that. But I understand it. Uh, and the cover was not optimal, and I understand it wasn't ideal well, for you. Well, I mean, you know? I think, I think, and and so just we can have this this conversation. It's actually fun for me to talk yeah, to you good. about it. I think, I think, uh, perhaps it was mo more nuanced in the way it land than in the way it landed. And I think part of that was the cover. Part of it was the cover line. The fact that you guys truncated a quote. I think uh, willfully. And um, I think irresponsibly. 
And I don't know whether you're responsible for the cover art or the quote, but I think it was grotesquely (laughs) taken out of context. And Adam Moss admitted such when I protested it. And so you can say the article itself was nuanced. And I, I I will actually give you that. But because of the other elements, it didn't land that way. Well, that is, I, I get you on that. And I, you know, I didn't have anything to do with the packaging of it. It was, it's a very editorial driven magazine. It was at the time. And so I, and <laughs> I'll, I'll add this little aside. Um, when we were in the editing process and this thing was being packaged, I was over at St. Luke's um, Roosevelt uh, where my first daughter was being born. And so I was very distracted. And uh, I basically was just like, I filed the story. You guys have fun with it and fact check it. I'm kind of busy, you know, occasionally I'd pop out to a Starbucks to like do some copy editing, but that's where I was at that time. And um, it's sort of fascinating to think about uh, the power that the magazine makers had. And you, you, you say in the piece that, you know, mag- you thought magazine editors had it out for you. Right. And, and I think to some degree, did they I, were. Did I yeah. say that? Yeah. Are, there's are a, you sure? I'm pretty oh, sure. Oh, in yeah. the piece, not in the book, in the piece. Um. Thought it was in the book, but uh, we'll fact check that later. But it, yeah, you know, fact check it, that because I don't remember writing that. I think that I was probably talking specifically about that magazine. But you can do a quick search if you want. That I well, said magazine editors had it out for me. Are magazine editors out, out to get us? To get us. So, um, well, a, well, in any event. Um, <laughs> And, and, and you also talk about Nora Ephron saying nasty things about you. I mean, there were a lot of like, there was a lot of piling on at the time. Yeah, yeah. it was fun. Well, you know, you, you have to admit the media industry is not, is not rife with courage at times. And no, uh, no. there is a, a, a narrative gets established and then people follow like lemmings and yes. uh, it becomes sort of, um, you know, competitive race to the bottom at times, not always. I mean, there are so many incredible journalists I have so much respect for, sure. but a narrative can take hold and it be- becomes sort of this this vortex. And that's probably what I was talking about, that, um, you know, there was a period of piling on that was, you know, slightly disconcerting. <laughs> Well, you know, part of it is a consequence, Katie, of this sort of like fishbowl that Manhattan can be. Right? Yeah. And and there's a lot of sequences in your book that are sort of like casual descriptions of, you know, the the milieu you were existing in and the Hamptons yeah. and these places. You'd walk into a room and people can't believe the mix of people, you know, you could be in like at a in the uh, at the box at the Patriots game or some football game and there's Dick Cheney and there's, you know, some right. celebrity actor. And you're like, how did these people all get the Lauren Michaels? How did these people all get in the same room? But that and I'm here to tell our listeners and you know this, Katie, but like this is just sort of par for the course. I mean, you go to the uh, White House Correspondents Dinner. I'll never forget this as long as I live seeing um, Ben Affleck and Donald Rumsfeld, like, you know, chumming it up like in a corner somewhere. I mean, I remember my wife was with me. She was just like, the scales have fallen from my eyes. I cannot believe that this is the way the world is, but it is the way the world is. And and these narratives get built by all these sort of this big peanut gallery of reporters and people like, you know, taking pot shots at all the powerful people because that's what 
you do when you're a journalist, right? And so you become well, part not of- not necessarily. I mean, hopefully not, not necessarily. Well, the New York Post tabloids and- a, a certain kind of journalist. Sure. But it's kind of where a lot of these tropes are in these cliches about you and your- and, and, and many of them are sexist because there was a strain of sexism all through the media and things got framed up this way, right? Uh, and you think? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, well, I mean, so, you know, part of it is the, as I go, to go back to the Katie Catherine conundrum. Yeah. Is the I, it's so funny. I can see how your brain works because I knew you were going to, I can tell where you're going to go. So this is fascinating. Go these ahead. Are, this is how journalists work. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, and then you ask yourself to what degree did I play into it? You know what I mean? Right. I mean, that's part of the fun of your book is like, there is a degree of self-reflection here about not in every instance, but you know, to the degree to which what made you successful also set you up for these, you know, attacks. Disappointments. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah and, I mean- Yes, I guess. I mean, can you elaborate? Well, when you're on the Today Show, and let's just say 20 years ago, you know, the reason they sort of set up a family on the morning show is to reflect the family that's in the house, right? And the average standard cornflake-eating morning show family watching their TV, you know, was used to a certain amount of sexism in their life. It was all baked in. Right. It was just culture. It was American culture. And the Today Show reflected that. And, you know, you come from a somewhat conservative background uh, going to UVA. It was the South. And it's like, you know, there's a certain female kind of like cliches. You know, you were in a sorority and it was like in sororities and fraternity culture is sexist. Right. And it's not not saying you should have been aware of it. It's just the way the world was. And but I would I would I would challenge that by saying, as you read in the book, you know, I changed the paradigm of that equation by insisting when I was offered the job that I had a 50-50 division of labor with Bryant Gumbel. Uh, when that was Matt a great Lauer, moment in the book. Yeah. When Matt Lauer came on the scene, uh, I could have said, I am going to open every show. I'm going to throw to every commercial and weather like Bryant did. I'm the anchor. You're the co-anchor, which I don't think is possible because I think if you're a co, there has to be another co. But anyway, <laughs> I basically, I basically, um, I think I, to your point, I turned this idea of a patriarchal family on its head. And it, I would tell you that when Matt got that job, I was considered the senior person, although I wanted equality because I think that's really what we're all striving for. And so you're saying I should have expected that I would be cast in this role. And I think you're right in the in the broader populace. I was seen as probably the the secondary figure in some ways by people who had been culturally conditioned to view women as subservient, but I definitely did a lot in that role to change mm -hmm. the perception of who had the authority, who had the power, who could, who could do the tough interviews. And so, you know, John Chancellor could ride a tricycle on the Today Show 
or do the kind of antics that morning shows require you to do. Yeah. And yet it wouldn't stick to him like Velcro as it stuck to me. And I think you need to kind of look at your own perceptions and cultural conditioning or one's own perceptions, sure. cultural to even to even kind of express that or posit that theory, if that makes sense. Right. Does it? Yes. And and all of this that we're talking about is like meta or the subtext right. of what we were seeing. I mean, when it was just happening in front of you, it's just, uh, you know, my editor at the New York Yeah, Observer. you know, like, should, should I have not done the Today Show because it would forever, as a woman, mark me as someone who was less serious? Mm-hmm. And because my personality lent itself so well to some of the fun stuff. And I did enjoy it. You know, I did have fun. I do have a Catherine and Katie side. You know, I have a very serious side that can have actually an important conversation with you or delve into all kinds of big issues. Um, but I also have this fun side who that enjoys life and yeah. enjoys cooking and whatever. And I think it's that dichotomy that is really hard for people to square. Absolutely. In, in I mean, that's, right? well, that's why the book's so interesting. I mean, the book is trying to square it, you know, it, for, for, for me and for the reader, right? Um, yeah, exactly. It, it, and which also is, maybe urge, urging people to, to leave room for, for many sides of a person, you know, sure. to see you as a journalist, but also as the father of teenagers, and as, as a husband or somebody who has a crazy hobby, I don't know what that might be. But, you know, I think the multidimensionality of people is still something very hard, especially on a mm. flat screen yeah. for people to appreciate and understand. And that's Although, really why I wrote the book, because yeah. I think I, I, I'm I'm sort of an avatar of every everyone, you know, and I feel comfortable with with all my sites, even my my shortcomings, you know, and I think what's so interesting is, is people have used that for ammunition when I put it out there. You know, that that's true. And I, I one thing I thought when I asked you at the top, like, a, why writing this book now, and it could just be like, you're at a place where it's comfortable to have this kind of self-revelation, but we're also in a culture in which you can be more multidimensional in the media. I mean, I think, I at least for me, like I would just say in the last couple of years, for instance, I'm doing this podcast right now. Very uncomfortable thing for me to be doing uh, when I first started it, because I'm used to being in print and having control and then trying to take a reserved um, profile as a journalist and not expose myself too much. But now it's, you kind of have to. Right. Everybody's sort of out there, at least pretending to be themselves. Right. And you yeah. pioneered you pioneered that a little bit I, when I think about it. I mean, in a way, the persona you had on TV of being able to be a journalist and a fun person who could laugh and make jokes was sort of a, um, you know, preamble. Re revolutionary back then, because I yeah. think especially for women, because I think, you know, they they couldn't they couldn't expose their humanity in a way. And I think, I think now everyone, maybe to a point where it's, it becomes almost inauthentic, 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, again, that old pendulum. Maybe, maybe, you know, people are trying to to show their humanity or show, you know, their core uh, in a way that that is possibly trying to win people over. That's a whole nother topic, but that's yeah, interesting yeah. too. Sure. Well. <laughs> Uh, and, and so I'm going to segue to something I think that relates to that, which is Donald Trump. So you talk about in the book, um, you know, just instances of being in the same room with him over the years and meeting him and having conversations with him. And there's a, mo- a late moment in the book where uh, <laughs> yeah. yes, you've, you're admitting to an error in the book uh, where that um, some footage in a documentary you made about guns had been – uh, edited, maybe not um, completely they accurately. Added, so they added sa- uh, added nine seconds and some music. Right. Uh, yeah, to a question I had asked about felonies and people on the fel- felons and people on the no fly list being able to purchase guns. Yeah. Right, and there were some reaction shots that were actually spliced right. in from another part, and. Um, for whatever reason, Donald Trump decided to uh, take a shot at you. O- well, over I'll tell that. you the reason. Yeah. It's three letters, the NRA, Joe. Yes, right, exactly. And he's obviously lined his campaign coffers with NRA money. And, you know, I was thinking I think $30 about- million, dollars, I believe, but you can yeah. fact check that. I mean, his election in, I think, in 2016 really altered. The world as we once knew it. I mean, if you and I saw over the last 20, 30 years, oh, yeah, the the networks are losing ground to cable and the internet, and it all seemed like something that was going to eventually happen on the horizon, and then Trump came into the world, and everything or just- kerosene on it. Oh, man. And the whole thing is like, now it's like there's a before and after, right? And the old world is, is gone. And- um, uh, you know, the world that made you and me and our careers and the, uh, that world has now, basically, it's on the ash heap. Um, but just putting on your sort of uh, news hat right now, I'm just curious, thinking about there's a lot of people looking at the January 6th committee. We're looking at Liz Cheney, right, who it's kind of amazing how things can change in the world. Like, you know, Liz Cheney 10 years ago was seen as like, you know, this really kind of uh, hard-nosed, hard-right, irascible uh, daughter of the vice president. And now she seems like she could, you know, be trying to save the country from itself um, by revealing the truth about what happened on January 6th. You know, the the question a lot of people have right now is, uh, is he going to try to regain power? And is the right going to come back and, you know, finish putting the rest of the country on the ash heap, ash heap you know, uh, and destroying democracy. And um, in your journalistic um, life, or as a, and I don't know if I'm putting you in the bad spot to be a pundit, but um, are you concerned about Trump coming back into power and the, and the conservatives like uh, finishing up what they started? Yes. I am deeply concerned. I am deeply concerned and worried. I had a conversation with Hugh Hewitt about this because he invited me on his radio show. He really liked the book, which stunned me in a way. But uh, I think Hugh Hewitt is a very decent person. And I 
had a conversation with him about this. And he was bemoaning the fact that in newsrooms across the country that there are very few people who voted for Donald Trump. And did I find that problematic? And I told him I found Donald Trump problematic. And yeah. basically, I do think it's, 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 it's complicated, or maybe it's not that complicated. But, and it sounds trite to say it's not sort of left-right if it's right-wrong. I said, you know, how can you tolerate somebody who is a major perpetrator of, of lies and who has you know, espouses this false narrative that his disciples repeat. And I think it's, it's very, it's very um, concerning. Well, it's scary for people who have been in our business who like think that if you can find the truth and reveal it, it will have impact, right? And that was completely obliterated during the time he was in power. Well, I think what happened was that Media organizations, I think, overcorrected and felt like they had to be part of the resistance. And I think part of being the resistance or part of speaking truth to power is actually speaking truth and giving people information straight without eye rolls and exasperated sighs and, you know, banging on desks. I think sometimes we should give the American people more credit. And I think it became so partisan, the coverage, that it had the opposite effect, that it made, it turned people off instead of making them aware of what was going on because it became advocacy journalism. And I'm not saying there's not a place for that. And sometimes I do think you have a moral obligation to point out things as I did when I wrote about my David Duke interview. Um, but to me, it's gone too far. And a lot of people I know who are not super political say, I don't know where to turn to get my news. And I, I think it's it's a real problem. Obviously, trust in the media is in the toilet. Yeah, Disinformation is rampant. I think people feel very clearly that news organizations, or at least cable, have picked sides and, you know, it's a sad state of affairs when a lot of people I know watch the BBC for <laughs> news about yeah. this country. Yeah. I think there are people doing incredible work. I cannot emphasize that enough, Joe. People I sure. really, really respect. But the social fabric has torn so significantly. I don't even think it's hanging by a thread anymore. Right. That, that it is very, very, very worrisome. I'm terribly worried about our country, and I'm terribly worried about the Republican Party, and um, I admire Liz Cheney. I mean, didn't particularly like her politics, and there's some things that we need to remember about her politics, but yeah. um, uh, I think she is doing a public service, but I just, gosh, you know, I miss the days of, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, the era of George W. Bush or George Herbert Walker Bush, where you could have actual policy disagreements and disagreements about, you know, cultural issues too. But somehow it just didn't feel this, this way. And yeah. um, it's a, we're in a sad state of affairs, I think. Yeah. Well, and uh, the reason I thought about that is I keep asking myself, were Liz Cheney to 
uh, and her committee to come out with an entire report that just put all the dots together. And you saw that what Trump had done was actually attempt a coup, which it looks like that and basically in every way. The Bill shape Maher of it. was right. Bill yes. Maher was right. <laughs> Bill Maher was right. Bill Maher, uh, who have also profiled. Um, and, you know, would it matter? Right. Could it uh, is the social fabric is the is the media even like a, you know, an instrument for even uh, being able to say anything and have it land. Yeah. Land. Have, it, have land. it have it have it have it permeate the consciousness or is it going to be dismissed out of hand right. by uh, and spun out of control by people who will reject it? I don't right. know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know, Joe. Well, um I certainly we'll see, right? uh, we'll see. Yeah, I'm, it, let me ask you finally: um, What are you working on nowadays? I don't know if you hate that question. I, <laughs> no, not at all. Um, well, I have. You know, my husband and I started a media company. Yeah, I know. Uh, yeah. And we have forty employees. Um, I'm working with a lot of young people and trying to develop content, which, well, we are developing content, whether it's in podcasts, a daily newsletter we have as well. That's pretty straightforward. It, it's probably not as snarky and fun to read as some that are out there, uh, but I'm trying to kind of be the change I hope to see, yeah. <laughs> um, or at least in some quarters. Uh, I'm developing two documentaries, actually three, um, and some scripted series. I was the executive producer of a show called Unbelievable on Netflix. I helped option the, the material from a, a, an incredible ProPublica piece, um, and that ter was turned into a Netflix series. I'm really impressed by scripted television and how it can address issues in a way that documentaries and even the best written magazine article can't. You know, I just finished watching this show called Made, on, oh, on amazing Netflix. show. Yeah, great show. Amazing. And and really, you know, showed me a lot about the system and about uh, emotional abuse and income inequality and the struggles that people face in a way that was really profound. Similarly, you know, I watched Dope Sick and I'd covered the opioid epidemic Joe, you know, almost since the beginning, but never, I guess the closest I got was when I did a documentary series for National Geographic called America Inside Out. And I did one of the episodes on white anxiety and what was happening to some of these rural communities. But I mean, Dope Six, I thought did such a good job of talking about sort of the, the pharmaceutical reps and how they were basically encouraged to be pushers and doctors and the Sackler family and, you know, the assistant U.S. attorneys that and, and the DEA agent. I mean, I want to go get that book it was based on to find out, you know, how much artistic license was taken. But I think sometimes, you know, storytelling can be so powerful in all these different ways. And so that does give me a lot of hope that we can address some of these issues. We can learn about them in a lot of different formats, be they podcasts or, you know, cover stories in the Atlantic. And, you know, I think the part of the problem is that we just not, we're not learning or growing together as a country because the landscape is so fragmented, you know, and everybody is siloed. 
So how can we have national conversations when there are a million different ones going on at the same time? So Rashad Robinson was a co-chair with me on the Aspen Commission on Disinformation, and he's head of the Color of Change. And, you know, whenever, initially when I was kind of hearkening back to the good old days of fewer outlets and, you know, the networks and Walter Cronkite, he'd always stop and say, be careful talking about the good old days because so many people didn't have a voice mm-hmm. back then. Good point. And so I don't, I don't do that anymore. But I do miss kind of an ability, and I think it's affected kind of the psyche of the country, for us to be able to kind of have a shared experience of learning and understanding and growing. And I think that's that's probably part of the problem we're facing now. Yeah. Well, we're all trying to figure it out, and we're all trying to learn. I think the scripted programming is a great point because those shows you mentioned are amazing and they're some even difficult to watch. I mean, but they're very, they give you a very visceral feel. Um, I also think because, you know, we read so much all the time, you know, so much is incoming 24-7. Yeah. Like it's, and and that's one of the reasons I really like documentaries. And I did one on obesity and I did one on gun violence and I did one on gender identity and our changing notions of yes. trying to understand. And, and I think- we're getting so many bits of pieces of fragments of stories that it's hard to take a step back and kind of look at the big picture and what does this mean and how do these pieces all fit together and intertwine. So that's one of the reasons I'm really attracted to to documentaries. It's because I feel like you can sort of connect the dots and and um, and help people get a much better, deeper, and broader perspective of all this shit that's happening every single day. Yeah, yeah. If people want to find out what's on the sort of Katie Couric production uh, slate, where where would they go? Well, a lot of it is in development. Um, but if they go to our website, like we're doing so many cool things, Joe. Like we, we started a shop and we're supporting brands, you know, young companies that are female founded or environmentally sustainable or BIPOC or LGBTQ and really have the same values that we want to that we want to promote in our company we're putting a spotlight on on these incredible people and we're elevating their brands and helping them do well while doing good but a lot of the stuff that we do, and I write essays and things, um, you can just find on katiecurric.com or follow me on social media. But we're we're developing this sort of community of people who maybe share share the same values that my husband and I do and are trying to put something positive back in the world. And we're working with purpose-driven brands because, as you know, if you pay attention to the Edelman Trust Barometer, the Business Roundtable, as trust in media and uh, government has declined, a lot of people are looking to companies to step up and to take a stand on big, important social issues. Yeah. I can't wait to go look at it myself and learn more about some of the documentaries you've got coming. And thank you, uh, Katie, for coming on this podcast. It was really fun. It was really interesting, Joe. I, I... I really enjoyed our conversation and, you know, nice to be able to talk about some of these things. I I feel like um, we've been living parallel lives all these years, and uh, now here we are finally talking about it, hashing it out. It feels good. (laughs) 
I feel I feel like a weight has lifted a little bit. You know, I feel like we worked some stuff out and that feels good. Well, listen, uh, I'm always available on Zoom if you need to talk. I, I might. And, I, uh, I, I'm here for you, Joe. That's a business I think you could really do well in is like uh, helping us work out some of our emotional issues. Um, I don't know about that. I have enough of my own, honey. <laughs> Clearly from the book Going There, which everybody should go listen. To, I listen to the audio because that's the best. The audio book is great. Thanks, Katie. And uh, we'll, you know, let's do it again someday. Let's let's uh, uh, we'll that stay would in be touch. great. That would be great. And have a great holiday and good luck with your teenagers. Thank you. And Merry Christmas (laughs) and Happy Holidays and Happy New Year. Thank you. Bye, Bye. Joe. And that's our show today. I'd like to thank Katie Couric for coming on Inside the Hive. Thanks to our producer, Brett Fuchs, and the people at Cadence 13 who helped make this program happen. If you like what you're hearing, if you like these kind of interviews, click subscribe. You're going to hear more of them in the weeks to come. Please support our advertisers the way they support this program. And we'll see you next week. Hey, John Favreau here. There's no shortage of political takes in 2024, but quantity doesn't cut it. We need a better conversation about the latest biggest election of our lives. On Pod Save America, me and my co-host cut through the noise to help you figure out what matters and how you can help. Every Tuesday, Wednesday, and Friday, Pod Save America is breaking down the political news that makes us laugh, cry, and snap our laptops in half. Expensive year for laptops. Make sure to check out new episodes of Pod Save America on your favorite podcast platform or our YouTube channel now.